Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today, after spending a couple of weeks looking at Easter, we return to our Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses sermon series. For more information about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Rob Schaff, and I'm the pastor of discipling here at Sardis Fellowship. And today I would like to talk to you about risk. Not the board game risk, which is awful and boring, but just everyday in life risk. Uh, When I was a kid, when I was about eight, me and my friends, we would meet up at our elementary school, Hillside Elementary, and we would race bikes uh, at the school. Now, our school didn't have like a running track or anything like that. We would just race around the school. So me and my four friends, we would bring our siblings. So there's about like eight of us together total. And uh, we actually came up with this awesome way of racing. Half of us would race clockwise around the school, and the other half of us would race counterclockwise around the school at the same time uh, because it changed the dynamics of the race. All of a sudden, the race wasn't about who's the fastest. Now the race is about who's the bravest uh, because every single corner is turned into this, this game of chicken because you can't see through the school to see what's coming at you. So we would slide around the corners uh, as fast as we were willing to risk it uh, to see who would win the race. This seems kind of crazy, uh, But I assure you, it was a lot of fun. The stakes had never been that high. Would you risk going fast and getting hurt? Because you have to go a little bit faster than others if you're going to win. But at the same time, you know, maybe maybe you don't want to go too fast because then you're guaranteed to get hurt. You know, the stakes in my eight-year-old mind, it was just a lot of fun. Eight-year-old me was all over this, but now that I'm a parent of an eight-year-old, I've come to see this race for what it really is. I think I have a better perspective on the risk versus the reward. And uh, in one word, this race is kind of foolish. It's like a death race. You're way more likely to crash and get hurt than you are to win. And actually there's like, it's, it's not worth winning. There's, you don't get a reward. It's just bragging rights. It's totally not worth it. Now, regarding risk, I think that there are some, you know, pretty clear observations. Some things aren't worth the risk like the death race. Or like the time I jumped out of a car going 30 kilometers an hour just to try to impress some girls. Or like the time I wanted free time and decided that I would be a good idea to write my final seminary paper worth 75% of my entire grade during a youth all-nighter the night before it was due. That's foolish, right? Hopefully over time with experience and with good mentors, We learn to define and discern the difference between wisdom and folly when it comes to taking risk. But of course, our risk assessment will never be 100%. Accidents happen in spite of our best risk assessment. Something will happen the way it's supposed to 99 times, and on the 100th time, it goes poorly. For example, I sneeze a lot, but I've only ever thrown my back out sneezing once. And I've walked thousands of kilometers in my life, but I've only been hit by a crosswalk, been hit by a car walking through a crosswalk one time. You know, sneezing and walking aren't generally risky activities, but sometimes they are. And another thing about risk is that there are always variables that are outside of our control. There's always going to be information that we don't know that contributes to a good risk assessment. For example, Diana and I were recently shopping for houses in Saskatoon, and there was this one house that looked 
perfect online. The floor plan was so cool. It was a four level split, so many square footage, and the pictures looked really good. It looked like they had done a lot of work on the renos. And so we had told our realtor, you know, this is in our price range. We really want to check it out. And he's like, yeah, yeah, this is a great deal. We should check it out. And we go there and it turns out the foundation of the house was a dirt foundation. And the whole house was actually collapsing in on itself. Now, if all we had to make our house purchasing decision was the information available online, it would have looked like a sure thing. But when we went in person, all of a sudden, we could see that actually, it was a really, really, really poor decision. It would have been a really risky investment, right? It was outside of our control, and it was outside of what we actually would have known had it not been for us getting to go there and see it in person. Uh, so that was pretty fortunate for us. How about this? There are times in life where taking a risk is unavoidable. Your back is up against a wall. You're out of options. You have to take a risk. You have to just hope for the best. Like the first time you go to a new restaurant and you don't know what the menu is and you can't tell if it's going to be good, but the server is on their way over and you have to put in your order. Or like when you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you bad news and then gives you some treatment options and the treatment options actually don't sound that much better. Some things aren't worth the risk. Accidents happen in life. We can't control everything. And some risks are unavoidable. But some risks are worth it. For example, I risked rejection when I asked Diana to marry me. She said yes. Totally worth it. I can think of a million risks, big and small, that I've avoided and that I've taken. And I'm sure that you can think of that too. Some of them were worth it. Some of them weren't. But one thing's for sure. It's always a learning experience. So here's a question that I would like you to think about for the rest of this sermon when it comes to the risks in your life. Here it is. Would God ever put us in a risky situation? Maybe you think, Rob, this is an obvious question, but I don't know if it is because Jesus says things like, which of you, if your kid asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you who are evil can give good gifts, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? But he also says stuff like this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for my sake will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Now, we've taken a couple of weeks off of our Acts sermon series over Easter to take a closer look at the Easter story. And now we are back to our Acts sermon series for the next couple of weeks to finish off this book. And you know how when a new season of a show comes out after like a long time, you kind of forget the details. So like Netflix releases a two minute quick recap of all of the episodes that you've forgotten so that you can get up to speed and you can, you know, enjoy the new season. Well, that's what we're about to do. Previously on Acts, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Paul has been preaching the gospel everywhere that he goes. And people either respond really well and a church gets started, or they respond very poorly and they beat him up and they riot and they put him on trial and they almost tear him apart. Most often, it's kind of a bit of both. After one particularly discouraging time of it going poorly, in Acts 23.11, it says this, The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Jesus commands Paul two things. First, take courage. And second, you need to go to Rome and testify about me. 
Eventually, what happens in the middle of all of this going well and going poorly is that Paul, a Roman citizen, who keeps being accused and brought to trial, asks for his crimes to be appealed directly and for his case, his case to be heard by none other than Caesar himself. That happens in Acts 25, 10 to 11. The lower courts, they keep finding him innocent. And actually, at a certain point, King Agrippa says to Festus, this other person who had put him on trial, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul could have been a free man. But remember, Paul isn't living for freedom. Paul is living for Jesus. And Paul's got his orders. He's to go to Rome. And so that's what he's doing. That is the recap of last season. And now, the continuation of Acts. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Paul goes to Rome. In today's episodes, which are found in Acts 27, 1 to 28, verse 10, there are a lot of details in these chapters that we're going to gloss over. So you should read them over on your own time. That's Acts 27 and 28. But for the sake of time today, I'm just going to be going to the abridged version. So here we go. There are two episodes, each making one point. The first episode is this. Shipwreck goes like this. Paul is under the guard and escort of a centurion named Julius, and they set sail for Rome. But it's the time of year when setting sail is kind of dangerous. It's a risky choice. And Julius decides to risk it because like most snowbirds, Julius wants to make it to Phoenix, Arizona before the winter sets in. Just kidding. It's not Phoenix, Arizona. It's a different Phoenix. It's a Phoenix that's on the island of Crete. But if they can make it there, it's a really good place to winter before they make the rest of their journey later to go to Rome. Paul says, eh, this is a bad idea. It's a pretty risky choice. But they push on anyways, and they're sailing. And soon there is this storm that's so strong, they need to, sh they need to throw ropes around the entire ship just to keep it together. And the storm grows more and more intense, and so they throw the cargo overboard. And the storm is still unmanageable. So they throw their tackle overboard. And then there were days and nights without even seeing the sun or the stars. It was this brutal storm, unrelenting. They hadn't eaten in a long time. And everybody is so busy fighting the storm that they are too scared to rest or to eat. And they feel like they're as good as dead. And they lose all hope. And so in their darkest hour, Paul stands up before them. And he says this. Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Thanks, Paul. Feels good. Paul gives a, yeah, I told you so. No, that's not all that Paul says. Paul goes on. You should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. Because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. How is, Saul, how is Paul so confident? Well, it's because an angel reminds him, Don't forget, Paul, you are not in Rome yet. You're on a mission. You will get there. You have this work that you need to do. You've been called to it. Don't be afraid. You'll get there. The storm still rages, and some of the crew actually even try to abandon the ship on lifeboats. But Paul tells Julius, look, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. 
So Julius has the soldiers cut away the lifeboats. They've been fighting this storm for over two weeks. They're starving. They're exhausted. They just haven't had time to eat. So Paul sits everybody down, all 276 people on the boat, and he, he says, you got to eat. And they eat, and they are full, and they are encouraged. And then they throw the food overboard too. So let's just take quick stock here. They have no food. They have no lifeboats. They have no tackle. They have no cargo. They have no options other than to trust in the God whom Paul serves and whom Paul belongs to. The next day, they see the shore. So they cut their anchors and they make for the beach. But on the way, they struck a sandbar and they're stuck. And the waves are crashing on the boat and the boat is is falling apart. They're so close, it's right there. They could just swim away. They could just swim there. But there's a problem because there are prisoners on this boat. And the soldiers, they need to be able to account for every single one of their prisoners. There are kind of two problems, actually. Not everybody can swim. And also, some people can swim too good. The, prisoners, uh, the, the soldiers are worried that the prisoners are going to escape. So they come up with a solution. Let's just kill the prisoners so that we can get on with our life. Because remember, if a prisoner escapes, it's the soldiers' necks on the line. But Julius stops them. And he stops them because he likes Paul. So instead, they risk it. They decide to trust the prisoners, to trust Paul. They swim and they float over from the shipwreck to the shore in shifts. And they all get there. Crisis averted. All's well that ends well. Episode two, the snake. So they've escaped the shipwreck. And they're on the beach of Malta. They're half drowned. They're soaking wet. They're exhausted. They're cold. They're hungry. And the islanders of Malta... They find them, and they're actually very unusually kind to this group of castaways, it says. They build a fire, and everybody is warming up and drying out. And Paul is helping out. Paul grabs some wood, and he goes to put it on the fire. And as he did, a viper jumps out of the wood that he's putting on the fire, and it latches onto his hand, this poisonous snake. And the islanders, they see the snake hanging from his hand, and they say to themselves, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and they said he was a god. After this, Paul ministers to the island He heals their sick, he enjoys their hospitality, and eventually they send him on their way to Rome with honors heaped upon him. So those are our episodes for today. And these stories are fraught with risk. They're sailing through storms. There's calculated risk of what can be thrown overboard to try to save lives. They're desperate. They got their backs up against the wall. There's this eventual shipwreck And there's the soldiers putting their lives into the hands of prisoners. And actually all of them putting their hands into into their lives into the hands of the God of Paul. Right? Just when you think you can relax and they've made to the shore, the snake, poisonous, seemingly out of nowhere, bites Paul in the hand. What are we to learn from the shipwreck and the snake bite? Well, I think that there are some obvious things that we can learn right off the bat. First, following God doesn't mean life is going to be smooth sailing. Paul knew exactly what Jesus wanted him to do. 
Get to Rome and testify. And how many of us get to enjoy that level of specificity from God, right, in our calling? How many of us know for a fact exactly what it is that our mission is, right? But Paul did. And yet, Paul knowing exactly what God wanted him to do, it didn't remove the risk or any of the hardship from Paul's life. Paul went through a lot to do what God had called him to do. Uh, I think the second thing we can learn is this. God is in control, uh, but we don't get to slack off. God is sovereign and he's in control of everything, but that doesn't mean that we get to sit back and watch as passive participants. The command that Paul was given to be brave and to not be afraid, it only makes sense because he's put into a frightening and perilous situation where he needs to act. Paul needs to speak up. He needs to help out. He needs to encourage others. He has his work to do in the middle of that trauma. Paul was not on a vacation. Here's another thing that we can learn from these stories. First, or a third, I mean, that humans can get justice wrong. When Paul gets bit by the snake, the first thing the villagers think is, ah, yeah, that makes sense. He must have been a murderer. He couldn't escape the goddess justice. Because, of course, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And the world always makes sense. And a person getting bit by a poisonous snake means that they're a bad person. But they're wrong. That's not how the world works. Bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. Justice isn't this like one-to-one situation. It's really complicated and tricky. And life doesn't always make sense. Even in these three lessons, there is plenty of things to reflect on in our own life. So for example, in my life, I felt frustrated with God when I follow the path that I think he wants me on and it doesn't pan out the way that I think it should. I've had unanswered prayers. I've had health struggles. I've had plans blow up in my face. And I've been left wondering, God, what did I do wrong? Because I think that I'm being faithful here. I asked you for bread and it feels like you're giving me a stone. Or how about the lie that is so easy to buy into that if something is meant to be, then it must feel good and happen easily. Who hasn't that thought crossed their mind when they're in the thick of something not going their way? Sometimes in an effort to reduce the risk in, in my life, I end up on the path of least resistance. And I confuse the path of least resistance with the path that God actually wants me on because I feel like because things are going well for me, that must mean that God that I'm doing what God wants me to but that's not how it works, right? That's, this story very clearly demonstrates that you can be on the path that God wants you on and things aren't going to be going well for you. How about this? Have you ever taken an objective look at a situation and come to objectively the wrong conclusion? I know I have. Like I said earlier, we do the best we can with the information that we have. We take that risk, but as humans, we are finite and we can't know everything. And there are often times we, we, where we will just straight up get it wrong. Especially in issues of justice. Those are all fine things to reflect on. But I think that there's actually a lot more going on in the story of the shipwreck and the snake bite. Stories, there, there's a lesson beyond just poor risk management and an unlucky snake bite. And it's this. God sent the gospel into the world... And there are forces that are actively trying to stop the gospel from going out into the world. 
In Old Testament Jewish thinking, the sea was this representation of chaos and evil. In fact, in Genesis 1, it says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, the sea. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. In a nutshell, that is the Jewish hope. The order of God triumphing over the chaos of the world. Later in Genesis 3, the snake in the garden is literally the original tempter steering humanity away from God's plan. So I am convinced that Luke, through the story of this sea storm and the shipwreck and the snake bite, that there's actually a lot going on beyond just those simple stories that Luke is trying to convey. Paul is not just the victim of Julius's recklessness and an unlucky recipient of a viper attack. Paul is living through very physical circumstances in the middle of a very real spiritual battle. Satan is pulling every trick that he has and doing everything in his power to stop the spread of the gospel. I mean, think about it. Paul's been beaten and flogged. He's been stoned halfway to death. He's been mocked. He's been accused. He's been shipwrecked. And he's made it through. And if the sea doesn't get him, the snake will. And the snake latches onto his hand. And the villagers think, yeah, he's getting what he deserves. But Paul shakes the snake off into the fire and he carries on ministering, healing people completely unaffected. Why? Hmm. Good question. Paul had written to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 to 12, and he writes this. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This is an amazing passage of scripture. Paul knows he is fragile. He is nothing but a jar of clay. But Paul knows the overwhelming power of the gospel. And the same God whose spirit hovered over the waters of chaos and spoke creation into existence, has shone into our hearts and given us the truth of Jesus. Even though Paul experienced so many types of horrors and so much affliction in his body, he sees it as joining in the death of Jesus in his own body so that the gospel can go forward. So that death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul knows his calling is a risk but he knows it's worth it. And when things go well and easy, and when things go horribly wrong and difficult, the gospel goes forward. There are times when Paul is scared and he's confused, or he's beat up, or he's knocked down, but he trusts God that the gospel is going forward. And holding on to that truth, no matter what happens, he can't lose. N.T. Wright, in his awesome commentary series entitled For Everyone, which I think everybody should really check out, 
Uh, He writes this, the sea and the snake have done their worst and are overcome. New creation is happening. The powers of evil cannot stop it. Paul may arrive in Rome a more bedraggled figure than he would have liked, but the gospel which he brings is flourishing and nobody can stop it. So back to the question I was hoping that you'd be reflecting on throughout this sermon. Would God ever put us in a risky situation? Yes, 100%, absolutely. And any risk to us is worth the gospel going forward in the world. Because we know that Jesus' death on the cross, he defeated sin and death. And death is the worst card that Satan has to play. But death is powerless against the resurrection life that Jesus displayed on the cross and that Paul and all of us carry around in these fragile clay vessels called our bodies. Every risk God asks us to take is worth it because our enemy has already been defeated and the gospel is going forward. In John 16, 32 to 33, Jesus, right before his crucifixion, is talking to his disciples. And he says this, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, have courage, do not be afraid. Even when you feel alone, you are not alone. God is right there with you. Do you believe it? Do you live like you believe it? The shipwreck, the snake, these and others, they were all Paul's burdens to bear for the sake of the gospel. Like Paul, the only way that we can face the risks that we will be called to face is through a deep understanding of the gospel. Understanding what God has done and what God is doing in us and through us. You know, Paul isn't just brave and courageous under his own steam. He was quite the character, but it's not like he was just so manly and all he would have to do is dig deep within himself and he would be brave and conquer. No. Paul's knowledge of the power of God in his own life is what enabled him to be brave in the face of such overwhelming risk. Today, I am not asking you to try harder, to be brave, to live fearlessly, and to learn to take aggressive risks. That is not what I'm talking about. I am asking you and me and all of us to do everything within our power to know the power of God in our life. That means reading our Bible and praying about everything and always being on the lookout for what God is up to. That means being in Christian community on a Sunday and throughout the week. That means serving others wherever and whenever you can to see what God is up to. That means talking through faith with our family and with our friends. That means doing everything that we can to know God better. So that when our lives genuinely lived as God-honoring acts of worship leads us into risky situations, and it will, that we will know that we are not alone, that God is with us in it leading us through it. And come hell or high water, we will know that those risky situations are not without reason. They are worth it because no matter what happens through us, others will come to know that God wants to be with them too. Now, when I was a kid, around the same time that me and my friends were coordinating these bicycle death races around our school, I got to hang out with some of my family who lived in Calgary. Um, My cousin in Calgary, he was a dental surgeon, and as a hobby, he raced uh, Porsches in a Porsche 911 Turbo Racing League. 
And one time when we were there visiting, he took me and my brother out for a ride in his Porsche. And it was incredible. And I specifically remember three things. First, I remember looking at the speedometer and seeing that we were going, you know, over 200 kilometers an hour. Ugh. Second thing, I remember thinking to myself, mom would be really mad if she knew how fast we're going right now. And third, I remember feeling overwhelming sense of peace because I knew and trusted that there was somebody who knew what they were doing behind the steering wheel of that race car. If you're racing in a car, you want to be driven by a race car driver. Paul lived like God was in control. Do you? Here's some questions that I want us to reflect on. What scares you about being a Christian? We aren't all called to shipwrecks and snake bites, but we are called to be Jesus's witnesses in whatever situations we find ourselves in. So what risks has your faith led you to and what happened? And have you ever experienced someone being faithful to God in the middle of a risky situation going sideways? What happened? I want to end this sermon with a piece of advice from the shipwreck surviving, snake bite surviving Paul himself. He writes this, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.